here in Genesis, coming into the last couple months of Genesis. Be reading Genesis 43, starting at verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks." He replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came down, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and we're merry with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this reading of your word, and we thank you for giving it to us and making us your people. You have brought us to a long and seemingly unimportant passage this morning, and I ask that you would touch our hearts with a reminder of the kindness and forbearance and patience of your providence. We ask that you would use it to give us wisdom and lead us to repentance. Work your word into our lives this day and by the power of your spirit, bring about increased faith in us this morning. 
For this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a problem, and it's not you. Or maybe it is you. It's about giving people wise counsel. As your pastor, uh, some of you, on rare occasion, ask for my counsel about some matter. Now, sometimes it's about what you should be doing or where you should work. Sometimes it's about relationships. Should I be dating that person? This person offended me. What should I do? Go talk to them. You offended me. I'm sorry. I don't like you anymore. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go to your church anymore. I'm sorry. Sometimes people ask for counsel because they're dealing with some issue. You mean sin. You see, I have a problem. You mean sin. I made a really big mistake. You mean sin. I'm facing some real challenges right now. You mean sin. Well, my short answer goes something like this. You should stop sinning. What? I thought you were a grace guy. I thought I was too. You should still stop sinning. What happened to all that stuff about love and forgiveness? It's all still true. You should still stop sinning. Easier for you to say, I mean, aren't you a sinner too? Absolutely. I should stop sinning too. So should you. Now, if they haven't left yet, <laughs> I'll try to continue on and show them how the scriptures might apply to their particular situation. And I'll try to show them how grace is what will enable them to stop sinning. And so here's the problem. I've been preaching about grace for so long now that some people think that's all I ever preach about. They say I preach about grace too much. On other occasions, I've been accused of not preaching grace enough because I'll preach against sin and call people to faithfulness. And sadly, one common notion today is that grace means not coming down too hard on sin. Now, it's important that you understand this. The grace of God is a crucial theological concept to understand. Grace is at the heart of salvation. Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace is at the heart of salvation. Grace is essential for holy living because the Apostle Paul says that sin shall not rule over us because, Romans 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So grace is essential for holy living. And third, grace is the motivation for serving God. Again, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 
but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So in light of the prevailing idea that grace implies being easy on sin, and because of the pervasive influence that grace has on the Christian life, it is crucial for you to think clearly about grace. Properly understood, grace does not lead to the tolerance of sin, but to the fear of God and to the turning away from sin. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Going to the New Testament, we read in Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, all of this is illustrated in our text today. You thought it was just a boring text about having a meal. It's the story of Joseph's second meeting with his brothers, and I think it portrays the truth of Romans 2, particularly verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? not knowing that God's steadfast love is meant to lead you to repentance, not knowing that God's grace is meant to lead you to repentance. In all this business of Joseph and his brothers, we're seeing that Joseph's been testing his brothers to lead them to repentance. For what? For their sin of selling him into slavery 22 years earlier. He's finding out their attitude towards their father, towards Benjamin, and towards God. And when he's able to discern that they're truly repentant, then and only then will he reveal his true identity. They still don't know that he's Joseph. He's just this mean Egyptian ruler. And Joseph's actions towards his brothers parallel God's actions in leading us to repentance. And this story shows us that God's grace leads us to repentance by revealing his great love and our great sin. So let's start with that, starting at verse 15. And the first thing we see is that God's grace reveals God's love. God's grace reveals God's love. So the men took this present. If you remember uh, earlier, they put together a present of various uh, foods and nuts and fruit and uh, had this all ready. And it's kind of an extravagant present because it's a time of a famine. So to bring food to give to somebody else during a time of famine is, is considered somewhat extravagant. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. 
When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the manor to dine with me at noon. <clears throat> the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. Joseph's brothers have finally convinced Jacob, their father, that he has to part with Benjamin, something he earlier refused to do. If they're going to go and buy more grain from this harsh man in Egypt, this harsh man, remember, is holding Simeon, their brother, second oldest, in prison. So the brothers take this present that Jacob has prepared, plus their original money, which mysteriously had been returned to them, plus double the money uh, to buy more grain and Benjamin and return to Egypt. Now, this isn't the first time they've encountered Joseph's love for them. When they returned uh, home from the first trip and they discovered their money had been returned, it was because of Joseph's love. Seriously doubt he intended for them to panic, although they did. And a similar thing happens on this second trip. The brothers arrive. <clears throat> Joseph tells his steward to take them to his house for lunch. And his intention is simply to treat them to a good meal and to find out news from home, as well as to discern where their hearts are at. But the brothers panic. They think he's going to hold them as slaves. In the play, Henry VI, Shakespeare wrote, Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. It's a great quote. Shakespeare had a couple of those. Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. And here the brothers' long-standing guilt is haunting them. When Joseph had put them in the dungeon on their first trip, even though it had been over 20 years since their crime, and there's been no mention of it since, they said, <coughs> excuse me, back in Genesis 42, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And now this guilt has made them suspicious of Joseph's love. Joseph is just trying to bless them and serve them and love them, and they're afraid. And so rather than respond in kind, they get scared. And that leads us to the next section where we learn that God's grace relieves our fear. Relieves our fear. That's really what this whole section is about, fear. We read there, starting at verse 18, And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. They go right to worst case scenario. Picking up verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, this is the steward replying, Peace to you, do not 
be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I receive your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. When the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. So what's going on is now they're quaking in their sandals. They stand before Joseph, who didn't speak to them, but said something to his steward. And the next thing they know, they're being taken to Joseph's house. And the brothers feared that he was going to enslave them on account of the money that somehow been put in their sacks on the first trip. So they explain matters to the steward, who tells them, verse 23, this is a key verse, peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought out Simeon. So despite their guilt and suspicion, we have to note the signs of Joseph's love for his brothers. First, there's this great reply from the steward when they express their concern about the money. And coming from an Egyptian steward, it must have stunned these men. Peace to you, literally, shalom. And he says, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Essentially, he's saying, I received your money, but somehow God has returned it to you. Take it as a gift from him. The steward's declaration is not describing some unknown miracle, like God dropping money in their sacks during a flyover or something. The steward who put the money into the sacks was not trying to deceive the brothers. They also knew that it was the steward who put the money in their sacks. The point is that God had been at work through human agents. And that's astonishing because here we have this pagan Egyptian steward instructing Israel's sons about God's providential care for them. The people who should have known that and now have this pagan Egyptian teaching them about the providence of God. It shows that Joseph has been talking to his steward about the one true God. And you have to wonder, did Joseph tell his steward to say this? Perhaps, maybe, likely, doesn't make any difference because he's telling the truth. Their father's prayer, Israel's prayer, back in Genesis 43, verse 14, is being answered here. And then he prayed, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. Did they remember that? Probably not. Life is swirling around them. There's little time to reflect. But if they did stop and think about it, they would have realized that returning their money is a sign of Joseph's love for his brothers. And next, Simeon is returned to them. They don't ask for him. It just says he's returned. They didn't know what he was doing. They probably assumed the worst. Perhaps he was working on some prison chain gang, building the pyramids. However, my guess, it's just a guess, but my guess is he'd actually been well taken care of by Joseph. Probably put on a little weight during his stay in prison. And his healthy return to his brothers is another sign of Joseph's love. And then the steward brought out water to wash their feet and provides food for their donkeys. They're not being treated roughly as prisoners, but with the respect given to honored guests. 
Now, all this seems too good to be true. And that's part of the problem here. It seems too good to be true. As John Newton wrote in Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." When you know you're guilty, God's grace, his undeserved favor, makes you feel a little uneasy. What's the catch? Sounds too good to be true. Michael Horton's recently written a book about the gospel, and the title of it, Too Good to Be True. So what do you do? You try to pay your own way. It makes you feel better about the arrangement. So when the brothers get to Joseph's house, they spend their time while they're waiting for him to show up by arranging the gift that they have brought to placate them. We see that in verse 25. After all, their attempt to return the money hasn't quite made the impression they hoped for, so everything's riding on this gift. And you can sort of hear them. You know, Reuben, do you think the almonds should be given first? No, I think we should save the almonds for last. Let's give them the pistachio nuts first. And they're counting on this gift as their hope for acceptance. And it's very typical of sinful man's attempt to approach God with our own efforts. A man is nervous about his sin and he approaches a holy God, so he says, what can I give him? You know, Maybe if I give some money at church, God will accept me. Maybe if I add some good deeds, God will accept me. So we bring uh, our pistachio nuts and our almonds to placate our guilty consciences and hopefully be accepted by God. But God's response is the same as Joseph's. He completely ignores our gifts. Joseph doesn't even comment on their elaborate present. Now, there's a good reason, of course, for us to be afraid of approaching God. After all, we're guilty. And he's absolutely holy. And he has the power to do to us whatever he wants. Just as Joseph could have sold his brothers into slavery if he wanted to. And if that were all that we knew about God, we would never even dare to approach him. But there's another side to our knowledge of God, and that's God's kindness and mercy and grace, which encourages us to relax a little bit and join him at his table. See, God's grace softens our hearts. God's grace softens our hearts, picking up at verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. He inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there, and then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians." And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, 
and they drank and were merry with him. Well, the next thing the brothers know, they're being treated to this lavish feast. And when they're seated according to their birth order, you know, they had to get some weird feeling, some eerie feeling. How does he know? How does he know what order to seat us in? That hasn't come up in the, in the text at all. How do they know? And it must have seemed very strange when Benjamin gets five times as much as the rest of them. Now, one, he's 17. The others are grown. There's some sort of natural explanation for this. I'm told that 17-year-old boys named Benjamin eat a lot. It wasn't that much. Anyways, so they're there at this table. They're seated in their birth order. They've been giving all this food. Remember John Newton's phrase, "'Twas grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Joseph's kind treatment of his brothers allowed them to enjoy this really extravagant meal, but they still haven't dealt with that nagging deep-down guilt. So their fears are not yet relieved at this point. And when Joseph arrives home, he asks them, still using an interpreter, about their welfare and especially about their father. And then he sees Benjamin. He'd seen him from a distance earlier in verse 16. But now he can see him up close and personal, as it were. And Joseph is 16 years older than Benjamin, his only full brother. So they're, at this point, 17 and 33. And Benjamin only been a year old the last time Joseph had seen him. Actually, he'll be a little bit older than that, but as he gazes upon Benjamin and has thoughts of his family and his brothers and his father, and particularly of his mother, who had died giving birth to Benjamin, all these emotions flood over him. And he manages to say, God, be gracious to you, my son, before he's overcome with emotions and has to flee the room in order to weep. And in addressing Benjamin, he communicates really tender affection for him. This phrase, God be gracious to you, is the same uh, phrase found in Aaron's blessing in Numbers chapter 6, famous ironic benediction, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, indicates a special blessing. Because these words don't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. They appear here in Genesis and then in Aaron's blessing in Numbers, that specific phrase. So Joseph is invoking God's grace upon Benjamin with this unique expression. And then he treats him to a great feast. And Joseph, being the master, sits at the table by himself. His Egyptian servants sat at another table, not wanting to defile themselves by eating with these Hebrews. You know, and they had to be wondering why in the world Joseph would invite these men in to uh, eat in his home, you know, in their eyes, Joseph's brothers are the hicks from the sticks, you know. And why did he keep giving them portions from his table, which is a sign of special honor? And how come this one, the youngest one, got five times as much as everybody else, again, due to Joseph's love for his brother? 
all of this is going on, and none of the participants really understand why. And the final expression here of Joseph's love is he tells his steward to fill each man's sack and to return their money, and he doesn't want them to pay for their food because he loves them. That's coming up in the very beginning of chapter 44. So up to this point, this story is a marvelous illustration of what theologians call common grace. God's undeserved kindness is shown to every person. Like Joseph's brothers, who had sinned terribly against him, every person has sinned against God. And if he gave us what we deserved, we'd all go straight to hell. But as Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Luke, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He grants us the many blessings of life when we deserve his judgment, so that we will turn from our sin. Once again, Romans 2, 4 uh, asks us, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And if you have not turned from your sin to faith in Christ, you're shrugging off the kindness of God. Because the very next verse is a warning, and it's a warning to us. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, now is the time when God has graciously shown you his kindness so that you may turn to him. But if you shrug him off, there is a day of judgment that lies ahead. Now, I told you earlier that God's grace reveals God's love. Almost. And it's almost because sometimes our guilt and our suspicion crowds out recognition of God's love. It's there, but we just don't see it. Just like Joseph's brothers couldn't see Joseph's love because of their guilt and suspicion. And I said that God's grace relieves our fears and softens our hearts. Almost. And what I mean is at this point in the story, before the brothers have acknowledged their sin, the kind treatment that they've received from their brother, whom they have wronged, has almost taken away the fear caused by their guilt. Almost, but not quite. See, they all sit down to this meal, and to their astonishment, they're seated in the order of their birth. And contrary to custom, the youngest is given the most. This has to make the brothers a bit nervous. They have a feeling that this man has some uncanny power to know things that have not yet been revealed. And the reality is that as you begin to warm up to God's love, your fears due to your guilt are almost relieved. Almost because you begin to sense that this one with whom you have to do business is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart, that all things are laid bare before him. And it's a little bit disturbing. You begin to see he doesn't deal with you as the world does, with the privileges going to the strong. Rather, the weak are the objects of his grace. He doesn't let you keep drawing near to him based on your strength, 
while you cover up your past sins. His grace peels back layer after layer until you stand naked and defenseless before him. And again, that's part of the problem. We don't really want to come clean. We hate to confess our sins. We want to show our strengths, not our weaknesses. We're afraid to repent because who knows what God might do. And we can hear about God's love, but when push comes to shove, our fears win out. And we can know the gospel and we can hear the gospel. We can even share the gospel and still be held hostage to our fears. Morris Sendak, author, recently died. Doesn't seem at first glance to have much to teach Christians. Something like an Egyptian steward, perhaps. After all, he was an atheist with a cynical outlook and a foul mouth. But underneath all that, I think Sendak saw something of the fallen glory of the world that we followers of Jesus sometimes ignore. His most famous work, of course, is his children's book, where the wild things are. And I have a slide for that. Ha! Where the wild things are is about a boy named Max. He's sent to his room for telling his brother that he'll eat her up. Now, my kids love this story. Most of them, anyway. Whenever I read it, It's a little beat up, a little worn. Whenever I read it, they'd start shifting around in their seats as they hear about his room becoming a forest and encountering these scary, teeth-bearing wild things. And Sendak said that the wild things originated with his fear of his grown-up relatives who would come to visit and try to hug him and kiss him and eat him up. I mean, you've heard somebody that you get a little, oh, I could just eat you up. Yeah, that didn't go over real well with Morris Sendak. But I think there's more to it that causes the story to persist because as both uh, ancient and contemporary wisdom uh, would tell us, stories exist to help categorize our fears and our dreams, our aspirations. And wild children's stories remind us of what we see everywhere in human art, from uh, caveman paintings to country music to the Cannes Film Festival. We're afraid of the wildness out there in the scary world around us. And whether we fear saber-toothed tigers or Wall Street collapse or malaria or our parents' impending divorce, there are frightening, threatening forces out there that seem beyond our control. But Sendak also, at least in his artistic imagination, recognizes something that the scripture tells us clearly. Because what's worse than what's out there is the uncontrollable wildness inside of us. Those passions, desires, rages, longings, sorrows within our psyches that seem to be even scarier because they're so hidden and so close and so much at the core of who we are. And the wildness within us doesn't seem to ever end. It just morphs through life from 
toddler tantrums to teenage hormones to midlife crisis and, well, sometimes to a lonely, cynical old man facing death. And the kind of story that Sendak wrote is part of a, a larger fabric, the knowledge that the wildness out there and the wildness in here needs to be governed. The wildness needs to be reined in by God and reigned over by God. And we need a king, and we need to be part of a kingdom. After all, in the book, Max only gains power over his wild things when he gains control, the control that comes with him being named king of all wild things. And at the end of Wild Things, the book puts this rambunctious boy right back in his own room after the journey is over. And it's the same room that his mother had sent him off to for his wildness without his supper. But after his time with the wild things, he finds his supper waiting for him, and it was still hot, the book concludes. Now, at the time the book was published, the famous psychiatrist Bruno Bettelheim said the scary nature of the story isn't found with the wild things at all. It's found in being sent to one's room alone and without food, which represented desertion, the worst threat, the worst fear a child could face. And he says that's what Sendak feared the most. And those fears are addressed by the gospel. Like children frightened by wild things, we retreat backward into a spirit of slavery and fall back into fear, Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The gospel reminds us all life long that we have one who's gone ahead of us. Hebrews 6, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we see a voice, we hear a voice uh, telling us. Maybe you see a voice. I hear a voice telling us to be strong and courageous, that I will not leave you or forsake you, no matter how wild you feel inside. Our king looks at us in our fears and says, Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with, it, is with you wherever you may go. I don't know what happened in Sendak's life in those moments before his death, but I hope maybe, just maybe, he found the one who alone was able to do what Sendak imagined for that little boy in his story, to look wildness right in the eye and to become king over it with a word. For the word came into the world and the wildness did not overcome it. Morris Sendak plumbed our ancient problem, heart-crushing fear. And I can only hope that somewhere in those final moments he saw the fear-crushing cross of Christ. And I hope he saw the one who went out beyond the gates of Jerusalem to where the wild things are and became king of all wild things forever. Think about your fears and then think about the king. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, we are so much like Joseph's brothers and not nearly enough like Joseph. We can be full of fear and suspicion one moment 
and then find ourselves laughing and rejoicing the next. We can be told about God's great love again and again and again and again, and then we listen to our doubts. We want to come to Christ on our own terms, desperately trying to claim some of the credit for our good works, and we try to deny our guilt even while we're hopelessly trying to cover it up. And you just keep patiently peeling back the layers of our sin and our shame, piece by piece removing the guilt and ingratitude, and one by one dissolving all our fears. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. For we pray in the name of the King, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.